lots of the models we have are parameterized assuming normal behavior. Children go into school, grown-ups go into work, some sick people being in hospitals, people mixing at home and occasionally seeing their grandparents, and very much forced by the opening and closing of the school semesters where, where, where mixing patterns change. And that all disappears with this as we move into the thing that, no, everybody is to stay at home in, in much smaller clusters, which will have the age of whatever the family is, or, or whether people decide to go home with their parents, or whether to isolate in different age classes, like the elderly people by themselves, perhaps in bigger aggregations if they're in homes, older couples, middle-aged couples, and then children isolating themselves from their parents. We need to know how to capture that and what proportion of people there are in each of those categories and how do they mix. Pandemics like the current novel coronavirus disease outbreak provide a powerful incentive to study the dynamics of complex adaptive systems. They also make it obvious, as new information streams in and our forecasts change in real time, how hard emergent behaviors are to model and predict. For this special mini-series covering the COVID-19 crisis, we will bring you into conversation with scientists in the Santa Fe Institute's global research network who study epidemics so you can learn their cutting-edge approaches and what sense they make of our evolving global situation. Due to the pace at which the news is changing, we'll ignore our normal schedule for the next few weeks and get more shorter conversations out more frequently. Please take a moment to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and feel free to suggest questions for upcoming guests on Twitter or in our Facebook group. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute, the world's foremost complex systems science research center. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and in each episode, we bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to understand the deepest mysteries of our universe. This is a show about your world and the people who have dedicated their lives to exploring and explaining its emergent order. This week's returning guest is SFI external professor and Princeton epidemiologist Andy Dobson. Among the questions we discuss, what are the benefits and limits of mathematical models in tracking contagious disease? How do epidemiologists make sense of the trade-offs between a pathogen's transmissibility and virulence with spatial and evolutionary models? When is it likely that herd immunity will and will not work as a reasonable response to COVID-19? What if this disease becomes an endemic seasonal infection? And how are the dynamics of epidemiological and economic systems related, both at the level of disease transmission and for modeling recovery? Before we start, we'd like for you to know that our free online agent-based modeling course is open and in session at complexityexplorer.org where you'll find copious additional resources to learn complex system science from the comfort of your home. We also have over 100 hours of recorded seminars and panels up on YouTube, and we'll continue sharing timely news and updates on our Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn feeds. For transcripts, show notes, research links, and more, please visit complexity.simplecast.com. You can support our research and communication efforts at santafe.edu slash give. Thank you for listening. Well, Andy, how are you holding up? Are you in SFI or are you also working from home? I'm working from home today. Right. Yeah. 
Is it SFI pretty much cleared out or what's the atmosphere like? There are a couple people up there. There's still, I think, residual working group, Laura and a couple other people are doing this week, but pretty much it was a ghost town. Right. It's such a shame. I mean, it's interesting. I, you know, I think it's an opportunity. I've been talking with people about how it's an opportunity at all levels for us as a society to sort of back off of these like local optima we've gotten stuck on to reevaluate our behavior and, and like maybe find a new, better solution. Yeah, no, totally. I, I mean, I think from an environmental perspective, seeing how quickly levels of air pollution and things like that can be reversed, it's just going to create an opportunity to say, look, this is, can be done if we all operate together and the world will go on at lower levels of product uh, of uh, fuel use, et cetera. Yeah, it certainly could. Yeah. Although I, you know, I think there's the uh, adjustment period. Yes. Is... It's, it's going to take well. <laughs> uh, we will have a significant adjustment period. Yeah. Well, so before we really dig into it, how are things for you? What does research life look like at Princeton right now? Oh, well, it's good. I, I literally was, have been in Panama for the last three weeks to, teaching. I, I, I teach this course on the ecology and evolution of infectious diseases. And uh, I always joke the first morning that most years we get a disease outbreak that we monitor in the course of the class because uh, it, it sort of builds in and brings realism to what we're doing. But this is certainly the most vivid example we've had. Uh, and in Panama, the, the uh, virus didn't get there until last Tuesday. Um, I was all set to come back Saturday. The students were supposed to stay on, but they all got pulled out by the university. So I had to reorganize them a bit. So everybody came back Saturday, essentially. It's then. Yeah, but Princeton is really quiet. There, there are people sort of walking around in isolated groups. The, the road traffic is down. There's a bit of rage when people are trying to cross each other at intersections because they seem there's no traffic, so I'll just run the light. And, and so there's people shouting and screaming at each other a bit more than usual. But the campus is now totally deserted. It's a bit eerie. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how this real-world example is facilitating you teaching epidemiology in your course. <laughs> I mean, while we're, while we're on the subject. Well, it, it works very nicely because everyone on the course is expected to do a research project and also to look at a neglected tropical disease. So we, we just keep a daily update of where the virus was, what the numbers of cases were in China, what the number of cases were in Italy, then Spain. As an example, of this is an epidemic really taking off in real time. And you know, we'd have discussions over dinner about, well, what sort of measures should be brought in to stop this? And, and what uh, epidemiologically can we do? And what ethically can we do? And I mean, the course is also great that we're all living together. So I start seeing the students from about 7.30 in the morning. And we're often together till 10.30 at night. So there's lots of opportunities to discuss these things. And this was, you know, the situation changes from the morning till the evening. It's happening so quickly. Yeah, well, so we have three of your papers that uh, we can get into here. And let's do that, shall we? Sure. The first is, and just in chronological order, it seems to make sense to tackle them in that way. Uh, Mathematical Models for Emerging Disease, which you wrote for Science Magazine. Yep. This is related to a question that people have been bringing up on social media, and I, I want to give some time in this conversation to those questions as well. So it seems right to start with a question you start this article with, which is, 
what are the limits of mathematical models in tracking, understanding, and uh, e extracting insights on emerging disease? Like, where <laughs> start with the problem of the problem. Uh, the problem, I, I mean, that, that that is the key question, and we're actually seeing that being really tested um, as we follow the news at, at the moment. I, I, I think there's sort of two sides to the answer. One is that the models provide the most powerful macroscope we have of, of trying to understand disease patterns at large scales. And to make any form of projection of cases and any response to possible treatments, you need those models. Now, the other end of that is how much detail do you need before you can make it? valid projections or provide useful policy insights and what quality of data have we got to parameterize those models in a way the projections are astray and so the chinese have been very good about providing access to the information they're collecting the italians are also being very good about that though getting this information out when people are literally trying to stop people dying is very very hard you, you don't want people wandering around with a clipboard trying to write everything down plainly the good thing is we we have mathematical frameworks that we've used before for ebola uh, we use all the time for, for measles and influenza so the key parts of the model structure are there it's also applied to humans, so lots of the human demography is there for different types of countries. But it's like saying, so what is different about this virus that means that the structure of those models have to be modified to take that into consideration? And then the second sort of unknown is how do we model social interactions between people of different ages and how much detail of that do we have to capture before it's radically changed by different interventions. Yeah, you know, when we had you on the podcast for the first time, you talked about the way that uh, different interactions and different network structures can create these sort of uh, reservoirs that, you know, something that's been on my mind that I, I brought up with Lauren yesterday is that we've been looking at this in terms of just the number of sizes of congregations, but there's also different network structures, different degrees of clustering within congregations of different sizes. Right. And, and so I'm curious how you imagine not just different sizes of groups of people, but different contact network architectures might play into the spread of this. I mean, those, as I said, that, that, that gets to the sort of crux of what we just talked about, that lots of the models we have are parameterized assuming normal behavior. Children go into school, grown-ups go into work, some sick people being in hospitals, people mixing at home and occasionally seeing their grandparents, and very much forced by the opening and closing of the school semesters where, where, where mixing patterns change. And that is constantly kicking a, a system that's inherently nonlinear, but giving it a, a kick two or three times a year, depending on how the school system works. That all disappears with this as we move into the thing that, no, everybody is to stay at home in, in much smaller clusters, which will have the age of whatever the family is or, or whether people decide to go home with their parents or whether to isolate in different age classes like the elderly people by themselves perhaps in bigger aggregations if they're in homes older couples middle-aged couples and then children isolating themselves from their parents we need to know 
how to capture that and what proportion of people there are in each of those categories and how do they mix. Now, one big advantage we have now that we haven't had before is that the people who've been looking at social mixing based on cell phone data can provide really rapid ways of parameterizing that. And it's a question of, ah, well, what proportion of people are on Facebook? What proportion are on WhatsApp? What proportion are on the next latest thing? And, and can you aggregate that data in a way that tells you something meaningful, meaningful about social interactions? I'm afraid, as you know, you say in your your email signature. <laughs> yes, yes. My uh, PJ Plowger, my definition yeah. of an expert in any field is a person who knows enough about what's really going on to be scared. <laughs> so I'm, I think it's important, you know, that we, you know, we don't seem as certain about anything, but there, I think it's, it's good to point out where the gaps in our understanding and our ability to adequately model these things are. And one of the things that you, you say uh, towards the end of this paper, which I think really broadly applies to complex phenomenon is really key here, is that emergence and prediction have this asymmetrical complex relationship to each other. Yeah. And that often, you know, that we're in a position where, you know, it, it seems like we expect people to be able to bring to bear, like you were just talking about all of this electronic surveillance and complex mathematical models into some kind of control room scenario, but we're dealing with something that we don't understand. And in many respects, the emergent behaviors of this are only going to be clear in retrospect. No, that, that, that's totally true. I mean, most of the time, I mean, we are looking at epidemic data after the epidemics happen and building up a knowledge of that. Things that made me optimistic is there's been a huge expansion in this area back in the late 80s, early 90s. The whole area took off when HIV appeared and lots of of the methods and incentive to do this work came from people desperately trying to understand HIV as it was happening live as an epidemic. Now, HIV operates on a slower time scale, although transmission can occur after a sort of couple of days, but people are alive for up to a decade while still infectious. Here, everything is happening much faster, but as I say, lots of the tools we've developed and them for social mixing and for understanding age-structured or socially-structured epidemics come from all that work. And it also attracted lots of bright young people in the field to study it. So there are a significant number of people out there all interacting with each other uh, to try and find ways to deal with this. So that makes me optimistic. You mentioned here in the, in the gap between understanding what a particular genome does in well-studied lab models yeah. and then what it might do in the wild, that one of the approaches that might help us understand this is actually drawn from ecology, predicting sudden changes of state in lakes and other ecosystems, looking at how time series data gives us understanding into phase transitions. And, right. and I'd love to hear you. We're certainly seeing that. that with the money markets at the moment, that the, uh, yeah, the prediction that a huge increase in variance is, is suggesting something is changing to a different state. It, it, we're seeing that on an hourly basis. So how, are, how do you see epidemiologists using that kind of insight to model thresholds in the pandemic? Well, for most pandemics, there's one critical threshold, and, and then that's that basic reproductive number for the pathogen. When does an infected individual infect more than one person? 
then you've got the epidemic that's taken off. Control is working out how do we change behavior, intervene to, pro- to get that number below one. So there is really only one main threshold. You can then look at that at different scales. How does it move from house to house? Or how does it move from village to village, town to town, country to country? And we've seen a sort of series of R-noughts of this thing taking off. So those are the, that's the, the main threshold uh, that, that we're concerned about for epidemic behavior. The interesting things we want to know now about that is, um, is there any geographical signal to that? It looks to some of us that as you move away from the equator, that number of people that an infected person is transmitting to seems to be getting bigger. We're also seeing that the the time course of the epidemic, the trajectory seems slower in some warmer countries than in colder countries. Now, we don't know if that's purely because if you're up in Scandinavia, you're still spending a lot of time indoors in close contact with people. Whereas if you're in parts of Africa or Southeast Asia, you're outside and not as close proximity and not breathing the same air. The other coronaviruses do seem to have a very strong seasonal signal. They they disappear over the sort of warmer months or longer days uh, and then come back again in the fall. So, So we're sort of trying to say, well, will you see that sort of pattern as this epidemic develops? offset against the fact that nearly everybody is uh, susceptible. So it's, you're going to have less of a chance of seeing that in a population where nearly everybody is susceptible than you will in a population where there's levels of immunity that, that buffer the epidemic. And so it's looking for opportunities to spread. Mm. So this seems like it dovetails into the next paper that you sent me to discuss here, which is the evolution of pathogen virulence across space during an epidemic. This is a piece that you co-authored with Eric Osnes and Paul Hurtado. We'll link to this in the show notes. This was for the American Naturalist. This is really interesting in, as regards different waves of the same pathogen as, as it evolves and as the virulence changes over time. Can you unpack this a little bit, please? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's only a, a matter of weeks before we get people wildly speculating uh, about is the pathogen going to evolve to get more uh, aggressive or will it evolve to become benign? And lots of people have been interested in the evolution uh, of virulence. Going right back to um, the the sort of classic studies of uh, Frank Fenner, who who was one of the people responsible for helping eradicate smallpox, uh, along with Don Henderson. But Frank was also interested in uh, the myxoma virus, myxomatosis of rabbits, because uh, myxoma was used to control rabbits in Australia. When they first introduced it, they introduced the most virulent strain they could find, killed like 99.8% of the rabbits. But quite quickly through time, it evolved to much lower levels of virulence. And then people, particularly Roy Anderson and Bob May, a bunch of other people, looked at ways of modeling that and, and found that that's the type of evolution of virulence you would see if there's a strong trade-off between uh, transmission efficiency and expression of virulence. Essentially, if you kill the host faster, it's not going to be around for long enough to transmit the disease. So the more virulent you get, Arnold or the ability to transmit goes down because you're not infectious for so long. And what seemed to be selected for with the myxoma in rabbits was a reduction in virulence because it made more hosts would get infected. And and the number of hosts you infect is the sort of evolutionary fitness of the virus. 
Now, what's different about coronavirus and, and this uh, bacteria we've been studying in, in, in the finches, and, and those finches are in nearly everybody's backyard across the US, is the evolution of virulence in a system where transmission occurs before virulence is expressed. So that reduces the potential for there to be a trade-off between virulence and transmission. And if you think back to the early days of this coronavirus, one of the big things we were worried about is how long are people infectious before they show symptoms? And people are, we're still very focused on that and how different that might be from location to location. So with this house finch system, because we've able to monitor Literally, since it emerged in 1983, it jumped from domestic poultry into wild birds, mainly house finches, and spread up and down the east coast of the U.S. and then right across the Great Plains into California, down into the southeastern deserts, and then has become endemic everywhere. Now, again, it's similar to coronavirus in that transmission occurs for about a week before symptoms appear. And once symptoms appear, the efficiency of transmission goes down. And when we make mathematical models of that, it creates the potential for virulence to increase as it becomes uh, more endemic, because there's no trade-off between transmission and virulence, or a much weaker trade-off between those two. And then the additional twist there, which is the thing that sort of disconcerts me about, say, the UK's initial policy, which to let's just let herd immunity build up, let's get everybody infected, and then we'll have herd immunity, that will bring it down. But if it operates in a similar way to this bacterial thing, that having everybody immune selects for strains that will produce greater immunity. And if that greater immunity is associated with more virulence, then you start selecting for more virulent strains. That's potentially equally possible that strains that are more immunogenic produce less virulent strains, though the mechanism of that will be more torturous to derive than for them to be more virulent. And as far as we know, the, the, the little data we have on immunity to coronaviruses is, is that it's not like measles. It's not immune for life, uh, maybe two or three years. Uh, but then, interestingly, uh, if you get re-exposed, it could be that you don't transmit and you don't show as bad, but you top your immunity up, which would be you know, good on one hand, and that, that would keep levels of herd immunity up and protect other people that don't. Transmission efficiency would go down. But that, that potentially creates that scenario. Once it's endemic, do you start selecting for the virulence or the transmissibility to, to, to evolve into? So, you know, this, this piece looking at the, you know, the short-term dynamics of emergence of more virulent strains, you talk about less virulent strains dominating the periphery of an epidemic and, you know, more virulent strains kind of emerging and, and uh, catching up to them. Um, what does that look like? with a, a, an outbreak pattern, like the outbreak patterns that we see now with like international air travel, it's, it's uh, you know, very nonlinear. There isn't a clear, it's not like, you know, the, the, with a Western front in World War I, right? It's this, it's this mess that just, it's all over the planet. So how, I mean, what are we really talking about in light of that kind of complex transmission pattern? Well, you know, that, that, that's an interesting question. We, we, we certainly, it's important to sort of differentiate between what's going on in the early stages of an epidemic when everybody's susceptible and the disease is jumping from groups of infected to new groups of susceptibles, new groups of susceptibles. 
that is certainly massively facilitated by airline travel, which seems to be hugely being reduced in the course of this week. Um, by definition, almost, the, the, the finches have their own form of airline travel. They fly around. So when we first saw it emerge, it goes up and down the, 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 the flyways on the East Coast and then spreads just by birds drifting into new territories to look into breeds. So it sort of spreads at a much slower rate as all airline travel is reduced in the U.S. and around the world and people start using other forms of transportation. You know, people driving out to the West to get to their homes out there, then they may be spreading it, but at a much lower rate than, than the airline travel. Plus, the slowness of travel operates uh, in some ways as a barrier. If we, if we go back to the discussion we had about Rinderpest, Rinderpest couldn't get into sub-Saharan Africa until after the invention of steamships, because then you could move cattle in less than the incubation time of the pathogen to get them into sub-Saharan Africa. If you put them on sailing ships, they would die on board, you'd kill the rest of the cattle, and the disease wouldn't be introduced. One of the questions from social media is, what other kind of spatial models do you think are useful in understanding this kind of thing? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I mean, everybody thinks their model is the most important one. <laughs> um, I, 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 and there, there will be vociferous proponents of people who work in the different areas. The, the network people will say theirs is the most important product. But as we said earlier, all these networks are going to have to change dramatically. So, so that, that, that will create the stimulus to, to people to uh, develop models for a network whose framework is changing incredibly rapidly. So that will be important to understand. Uh, again, I think we are going to revert to a situation where we're thinking of sort of metapopulation models at different scales. The, 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 uh, what happens in each individual household and, and how strongly and weakly are those households connected? And how are that collection of households in one area connected to other towns? And, and what is the metapopulation structure of New York City? Is, it, is each tower block a particular subpopulation? Are they like cruise ships turned up vertically and they'll jump from cruise ship to cruise ship or tower block to tower block? And crucial to all this is what are the locations where transmission is occurring that couples different points in the network together? You know, is it delivery drivers? Is it um, people sneaking out uh, for uh, anonymous assignations? I mean, we, we noticed in foot and mouth uh, in the UK, and, um, the attempt was to isolate all the farms and perhaps some farms surrounding them. Uh, but often it was things like the beds moving between farms in the same pair of boots that would move it around. But sometimes it was farmers, uh, meaning other farmers' wives or, or even other farmers that were sort of moving the disease around. And, and there were sort of embarrassing outbreaks that could only be explained in one or two different ways. You know, speaking with Laurent about this, you know, he and Sam Scarpino and a, a couple others have been working on the way that this stacks and interacts with contagions yeah. of information and how, you know, there's a reasonable argument for mapping this kind of more in terms of populations that ab abide by different kinds of behavior, that there's a, a sort of virtual layer to this, that it's not just about spatial coordination, but also about right. mimetic transfer of, you know, the way that people's behaviors are governed by beliefs about what kind of practices to adopt. So I don't know if you have any statements on that. I, I mean, 
that that is always going to be an interesting signature that that, that people's different cultural behaviors will have a huge effect on the way that these pathogens are moved, particularly something that requires quite physical proximity to move them around. How people's social systems are structured by age, coupled on top of that spatial distribution and whether they all meet once a week to aggregate in a church or something, that, 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 that's a very powerful mechanism for speeding up an epidemic. Um, people, you know, solitary hermits are usually pretty healthy because they're not interacting with others. So obviously a question on a lot of people's minds, and it's it speaks to a statement you made in that first paper about, you know, really not being able to understand these things except in hindsight. But when we had you on the podcast the first time, we spent a lot of time on the issue of the interplay between epidemics and economics. Right. And, you know, the way that susceptibility to disease can help lock people into poverty right. and you know create these stable patterns within the global economic system that makes it difficult for us to lift people into a state of economic health. And so I'd be curious to know how you're thinking about this in light of the anxiety a lot of people are understandably feeling about the economic impacts of the social isolation and not knowing where the line is, you know, especially with our testing being as incomplete as it is and so on. That's maybe two questions. Well, I mean, this is a sort of an alternate form of virulence in, in some ways that, that having to suddenly close all sort of social uh, sites where people meet socially, bars, restaurants, hotels, closing all that down has a huge knock-on effect that um, it should slow down transmission but suddenly all those people don't have jobs. They're reliant on money coming in week to week. How can you supply funds so as they can feed themselves and convince them to stay isolated that the relatively, well, we don't, I don't want to use the word prolonged, but the length of time they're going to have to be isolated and not own money will eventually allow them to go back to some sort of jobs and probably the ones they had before. But the stress they're going to go under while that goes on is going to be deeply disturbing for lots of people. And it's like, it's this thing when we look, when we talked about two months ago, yet there are lots of people who live in Africa, in the US, South America, in poverty, and that increases their susceptibility to disease. But here we have the situation, the people who thought they had stable jobs that were bringing in a weekly wage suddenly become much more susceptible to this because once that wage disappears, there, there are all sorts of additional stresses on their life, which come out and contact people and increase their susceptibility to this. So it, it's not going to be an easy problem to deal with. Do you see any opportunity? I, it, it seems like epidemiological thinking might help us model better market forecasts and maybe better strategies for recovering from this situation when uh, things start to die down, if they start to die down? Well, I think certainly you've got to integrate epidemiological thinking into how you're going to get the uh, economy started again. And what are ways to start up airlines? So, so people who are flying uh, are tested and not infectious and, and 
or have a certificate showing they're not they're not, not infected. That's a valid certificate. Uh, having people getting the, the the sort of banking economy and the rec, the the sort of um, the, the the whole service industry of restaurants, bars, hotels, getting that going again because it's of the order of five to eight percent of the U.S. workforce. So you've got to get those people going again. The good thing is that there's an industry of people working on models for this disease. So tons of those insights will be available. There will be heated discussions about which models are right, but there's uh, enough mechanisms to test them and, and, and try them out without actually having to do the experiment of mixing people together to see which one worked and which one didn't, and then to pull back if anything starts to go wrong. And again, this is going to be interesting as China now mentally thinks we're through the worst of this and starts putting its workforce back. The, the levels of herd immunity, even though over 100,000 people, I think somewhere between 80 and 100,000 people have been infected in China, you really have to get above 50% of the population infected and recovered before you're going to have any herd immunity that's going to slow down future outbreaks. And 100,000 out of a billion is a tiny percentage. So what do you suppose the odds are that this is going to remain uh, endemic? Now, I know a lot of people are asking that question. You know, what happens if this just becomes a sort of seasonal illness? I, I think if you take that proportion of people who have been infected in China and subtract it from one, that, that's the probability that this is going to come endemic. It's, it, it, uh, it's, we're going to have to find a way to deal with it as an additional form of seasonal flu and, and hope that we deal it in a way that doesn't select for it to become more virulent. People are, well, I think the, the first vaccine trials were started in Seattle yesterday, and I think in China today. We need to switch around quite a lot of manufacturing ability for vaccines to get a vaccine broadly available. Even if we had one tomorrow, to have it broadly available would still take about a year. That should then become widely available. And once it's endemic, it's likely you'll only have to vaccinate people after a certain age as well as sensibly just vaccinating them uh, when they're at high school or junior school uh, to get herd immunity up to it. What are some of the most potent and useful resources that you might suggest to people right now if they want to learn more about this, if they want to stay on, on top of things? Um, again, there, there are some very good online MOOCs, courses on, on infectious disease. Uh, Penn State has an excellent one that's got a very good group of people ex explaining the, the, the biology and mathematics of epidemic diseases. Um, the, you know, there's a whole host of literature. Uh, the, the Anderson and May book that, that I mentioned on the infectious diseases of humans uh, that came out in 1990 is still both the Old and New Testament on, on this, if you like, and, and, and it leads you down the right structure for a whole variety of different types of diseases. And there are some very good people to follow on Twitter, uh, and it's well worth doing that. Jeremy Farah from the uh, Wellcome Trust, good advice. Mark Lipsitch from the Harvard School of Public Health has been providing excellent advice. So the people that they seem to be, Eddie Holmes from uh, University of Sydney has been providing great stuff on the uh, genetics of this and how that's all happening. Uh, following them and the people they seem most connected to is going to provide us with what I think is really solid scientific input on a day-to-day -day basis. 
Excellent. Andy, thanks again for taking some time to right. talk with us. Always good. Hope to get together here with for a beer once this is all over. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> all right. Good to see you. And say hi to everybody there for me. I will. Stay safe out there. Cheers. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.